Good morning. I've entitled the lesson this morning, The Good Shepherd. Shepherd was an image that is common all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And as Jesus is going to speak in John chapter 10 this morning about the shepherd, he would have been speaking in terms that his audience would have understood extremely well, better than us. Because for us, if you've ever, if you, if you have the idea of a shepherd in your mind, the Western view of shepherd is a detached owner who walks behind the sheep and keeps them in line, probably with the use of a sheepdog, driving them to the destination that he wants them to go. The Eastern view of a shepherd was very different. It had the suggestion of an intimate bond between shepherd and sheep, and the shepherd walked in front of the flock. And by the sound of his voice, they followed him to their destination. Now for us, if, if I were to ask you the first Bible verse that you ever memorized, or maybe the first one you ever remember, chances are it was from your childhood, and it was the first verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But those, that image is a little... Um, that image is a little um, odd for us. So I want to I give you some background about how Jesus' first hearers would have recognized it. The image of a, of a shepherd in the Old Testament is used uh, for those who are involved with leadership or, or those who are given responsibility to care for God's people. It has the idea of being a provider and a protector and a nurturer. Uh, all tied up with it. In fact, in, in the New Testament, the Greek word that we translate pastor is really the word poimen, and actually it's the word that means shepherd. Instead of using the word pastor, we could translate it as shepherd, and, and that would make perfect sense because the responsibility that a pastor has is like that of a shepherd over a flock of sheep. But in the Old Testament, God speaks about those leaders who were uh, who were not faithful to the, to the responsibility that had been given to them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jeremiah chapter 23, first couple of verses. The prophet speaks on behalf of God and he says, Woe to the shepherds who are causing the sheep of my pasture to perish and are scattering them, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not been concerned about them. Behold, I am going to call you to account for the evil of your deeds. The idea of a shepherd actually scattering the flock instead of bringing it in, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. It's the idea that, that the shepherd has become as much of a threat to the sheep as the predators that are waiting out in the mountainside. Well, the 34th chapter of Ezekiel is another example that would have been in the minds of Jesus' listeners, a different prophet, but the same imagery. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, This is what the Lord God says. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should the shepherds not feed the flock? But you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you searched for the lost. But with force and with violence you have dominated them. Now understand, these prophets are not talking about actual shepherds. They're using the imagery to describe people who had the, the, the stewardship, the responsibility of caring for God's people. And he says, you haven't healed the diseased, you haven't, you haven't gone after the lost, you haven't brought them in, you've scattered them out, you haven't fed them. In fact, it's just the opposite. The shepherds were guilty of taking only for their own advantage from the sheep, as though the sheep were just there for the advantage of the shepherd. Well, there's one more. The book of Zechariah. Again, a different prophet, same imagery. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17. Woe to the worthless shepherd who abandons the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. In other words, those physical characteristics that a shepherd should use, an eye to watch the sheep, a right arm to provide and protect for the sheep, God said, I will actually take away those things that you misused because you didn't care for my sheep. Well, let's go back to John chapter 10. (coughs) We saw last week in John 9 that Jesus healed a man who was blind, a man who was born blind, a miracle that they had never seen before. And he did it on the Sabbath, which caused an uproar among the shepherds, the religious leaders of the people. They got all bent out of shape, and Jesus had a conversation with them about spiritual and physical blindness. Now, we left off with Jesus talking to the man, but we're going to pick up at the end of uh, of chapter 9, when they, when the Pharisees track down Jesus, they're going to actually ask him a question. It's, they mean it to be a rhetorical question. Now, you understand a rhetorical question is a question that you think the answer is so obvious to that you don't really mean for anybody to actually answer it. They're going to ask a rhetorical question, and Jesus is going to answer it, which means the first truth that we need to pay attention to today is Don't ask a question of Jesus unless you want him to answer it. All right? Here's what we have. Let's start with John chapter 9, verse 40. And we're going to see this rhetorical question answered. Those who were with him, meaning with Jesus, from the Pharisees heard these things. Jesus had been talking about blindness with the man who could now see. The Pharisees heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? It was kind of a snide, snarky question. Well, you're certainly not talking about us because we're the Pharisees. We're the shepherds. We're in charge of this gig. We're the pastors who know all the theology. We're the ones that have been trained. You don't think we're blind too, do you? Well, don't ask a question if you don't want Jesus to answer it. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. 
But now that you maintain, we see your sin remains. It's interesting, John, in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he'd made this statement that he did not primarily come into this world to condemn the world. And yet, what we find all the way through the book of John is that the rejection of Jesus and his mission inevitably means that, reject, that, that, that condemnation is coming. Jesus didn't come to condemn, and yet their rejection makes condemnation inevitable. Jesus is going to say, you're willfully blind. In other words, uh, these, this story is about human need. Jesus is suggesting by using the image of blindness, he's suggesting that if you're blind and you know you're blind and you ask for help, Jesus is the solution to your problem. But here's the flip side. If you're blind, but you're convinced that you can see, then Jesus can't help you. You see, the most difficult people to reach with the gospel are people who get up on Sunday morning and they take a shower and they get dressed and they drive to church. And they walk across the parking lot and they come in the front door and they find their seat and they take their place and they listen to the music and they listen to the sermon and then they go home and not once did they ever have a sense of need because somewhere along the way they assessed themselves and declared that they were righteous enough. The gospel cannot reach that person. You see, the difference between the blind man and the Pharisees was the blind man was physically blind, and he knew he was physically blind. <laughs> Every day he got up to beg because it was all he could do. He knew that was his, his lot in life. But he met Jesus, and Jesus gave him physical sight but in the giving of physical sight, he realized that he didn't just need to see physically. He had a lot of other needs in his life too. And when he met Jesus, he called him Lord. The Pharisees were so satisfied in their smug theological assessment of themselves that they couldn't imagine that they needed anything Jesus was offering. And if you're here today and you're good to go with God and, and you don't need any of this church stuff, you're just here with somebody else or you're just being polite or maybe it's just a habit you haven't kicked yet and you just go to church on Sundays. Let me tell you something. The gospel can't get through to you. Am I blind too? Don't ask that question unless you want an answer. Because if you admit that you're blind... Jesus will help you see. But as long as you think that you're good to go, that you see just fine the way things are, that's when your guilt remains. And that's what you answer for. Well, they had a willful blindness, but they also had wicked motives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus starts by saying, truly, truly. Now that in Greek is the word amen. Amen is the most common word in, in language use on the planet today. Uh, the word amen has been borrowed from the Hebrew and it shows up as amen in something like 160 languages. Here, 
it's translated truly, truly, but whether it's amen, amen, or truly, truly, or in the, the old King James, it's verily, verily, it means the same thing. It means there's alarm bells going off, and what's about to be said is very important, so don't miss it. Jesus is just like that alarm that woke you up this morning and said, hey, it's time to get up, it's time to give your attention to something. Jesus is issuing an alarm. He says, truly, truly, this is not a casual and meek statement. He's saying, listen, I'm about to tell you something and you better grab hold of it because it is the most important thing you're going to hear today. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. He's talking about a sheep pen or a sheep fold. In the ancient world, what they would do is they would, they would formula, they would build these communal corrals, if you will. They were corrals for the sheep where shepherds could come in from the fields and they could keep their sheep safe overnight. But this wasn't a corral in the sense of having like three posts, you know, together or maybe barbed wire. It was a wall that was solid. It was sometimes square, but a lot of times they were round, and, and that, that solid wall all the way around, it would go very high. They would actually put vines with briars or, or thorns that would grow along the top of the wall. It's kind of like when we put, a, put up a fence and, and we put barbed wire at the very top of the fence. It's to discourage people from trying to climb over. They would have these built, and, and every town would have one, and you could bring the, the, the sheep in and they would go through the gate. Now only the sheep were allowed to go through the gate. It was designed to be narrow so that you could count your sheep, so that you could know how many that you had, that they were all there, and you would stand there and watch as they went in so no predator could sneak into the gate with them. Inside that sheep pen, the sheep were more secure than at any other moment during their day. Because they had been led there, they had gone through the only opening, they were in the safe place that had been provided by the shepherd. Now, at the end of the day, the door would be closed, so you couldn't get into where the sheep were. It would be made extra secure because the shepherd would often lie down and sleep in front of the gate. The only way to molest those sheep, the only way to get in and, and do damage to those sheep was to climb that wall. And Jesus says, by definition, anybody that climbs the wall is a thief and a robber. Okay? Now, what he's talking about here are people that want to take advantage of the sheep, who want something from the sheep, but don't have the sheep's best interest in heart. They have wicked motives. Intentional harm is their desire. And he's going to apply this to religious leaders who are concerned only with the personal advantages they can get from running a church. Now, if you think I'm leading up to something, you're right, I am. One of the things that makes this passage so relevant is that in our generation, we have too many people sitting in too many churches with too many pastors who are really thieves and robbers. The reason they have that job is because they have figured out that it's a way that they can get something from the sheep. They don't care about the sheep. They're not interested in the well-being of the sheep. It's the advantage that they can get from the sheep that makes them, put, makes them take on that, that role. Okay, we'll come back to that. Here Jesus is going to now <coughs> begin to talk about that door. 
And he's going to use one of the I am statements that John loves to record for us. You know, we've seen before Jesus said, I am the light. I am the bread. We've seen this in several places. Well, here he's going to tell us, I am the door. But let's start with verse 2. Keeping up with this image about the sheep being secure in in the pen by going through the gate, he says, but the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he's qualified to be among the sheep. He can, be, he can go through the door. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts all his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what the things which he was saying to them meant. Now, we'll, we'll explain that in just a minute, but, but think about this. He shifted from chapter 9 where he's talking about spiritual sight, and now he's going to talk about spiritual hearing. There is in the relationship of the shepherd to his sheep this intimacy that comes with a recognition of his voice. He says a shepherd can pass through the gate because he's qualified to be with the sheep, and he calls the sheep by by his voice. Now, in those those communal pens, there might have been three or four flocks of sheep all mixed up together. But when the morning came and it was time to go out, a shepherd, it's a fascinating thing to watch. A shepherd would call his sheep, and his sheep would perk up and go to meet him. They would follow him. He wasn't driving them. He wasn't corralling them. He was just walking and they would follow him. The sheep that were of different flocks would stay there. They wouldn't even lift their heads. The voice of that shepherd didn't even draw their attention. They knew their shepherd. Now, as I've, in, in, in the eastern part of the world, one of the fascinating things to see even today is in small cities where the communal pen is still inside the city, Shepherds will come and they will take their flocks in the morning and they will lead them out of the city to wherever they're going to pasture them for the day. But what you find is the shepherd will come and get his sheep and you'll see this shepherd. He's not driving the sheep. He's not behind them trying to corral them in a particular direction. He's walking down the road and right beside him there are cars and trucks, there are horns blaring, there's the noise of of city life going on and yet you'll see the shepherd, he's singing quietly or he's chanting or maybe he's just talking. And, and, but he keeps his voice there, and despite all the noise pollution coming from all the different directions, the sheep zero in on that single voice, and he leads an entire flock of sheep through the hustle and bustle of the city out to the pasture where, where the shepherd is taking them. It is absolutely fascinating to see. And Jesus says they won't follow a stranger because they won't, they won't accept his voice. <coughs> I find it interesting in our culture, one of the things people tag me with in videos and things occasionally, and, and one of the things that's kind of a hot topic right now is this whole idea, maybe you don't know this word, but, but we've got all these people that are deconstructing their faith. What it amounts to is, and, and sometimes it's people who have been in ministry. Uh, we've seen some Christian music artists do this. We've seen pastors do this. Uh, And it's the idea that at some point something happened in Christianity, uh, something happened in their understanding of the Word of God, and it just was a bridge too far. And they said, hey, I don't believe any of this. And they begin to walk back 
and deconstruct their faith. Now, the fascinating thing about those videos is somebody who, who says, I got it all wrong. I didn't really understand it correctly, but now I understand it perfectly and I reject it. I, I love people who don't do Christianity who like to tell us how we should do Christianity. But first of all, let me talk about this idea of deconstruction. You can't deconstruct something that you never constructed. And the reality is, these people are saying, well, well, I was, uh, what they'll inevitably say, they'll never say I was walking with Jesus. They'll say I was active in church. I don't give a flying rip if you were active in church if you don't know Jesus. It's not about being active in church. Active in church, that's a result of walking after the master. It, it's not a replacement for it. But they'll always say, well, I was, I've done all the church stuff. I, was, I went to youth group and, and I, I, I did it all. But, but then one day I just figured out that it was all baloney and I, I just walked away from it. Well, here's the thing. You never heard the shepherd's voice. Because the people who know this shepherd never walk away from him for a lifetime. If you listen to some other voice, you were never in his flock to begin with. He says, I'm the door, meaning I'm the way that you have to pass through to get into the security of being in this flock. I'm going to provide you not just intimacy, but I'm going to give you overflowing life. Real quickly, verse 10 is the end of this section. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I've got different motives. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. <coughs> Here's your Greek lesson of the day. That word abundantly it comes from the Greek word perison, which means something that goes way beyond what's necessary. What Jesus is saying is, when I draw my sheep to me, I don't just give them enough life to get by. I give them more life than they've ever imagined. That's our shepherd. Well, that's where he's going to take this. He uses the image of I am the door, but here he's going to tell us I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters the flock. He flees because he is a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. The first thing we need to know about the good shepherd is he's willing to lay down his own life for the sheep. It's a voluntary offering, but he is the good shepherd precisely for that reason, because he's genuine. And, he had, and, and there are no limits to what he will do to protect the sheep. The word actually describes substitutionary atonement. That is, this is, here he's saying he's the good shepherd, but he's already told us that, he's already, we've already heard from John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then he goes to talk about not only giving his life for the sheep, but he says there are, there are others who serve as shepherds, but they're just hired hands and they don't have his commitment. <laughs> think about this there are four enemies of the sheep in this story the first two we've already seen thieves and robbers those are people who know that they're wicked those are pastors who know that they're charlatans they know that they're playing a game they know that they're just doing this to get out of it what they can get out of it i had a guy tell me one time this is this is honest truth 
I had a guy tell me one time that there's no better job in the world than a pastor because you literally only work one or two days a week. I've been trying to figure that out for years. But see, his motive was, it was a lazy man's job in his mind. Well, let me tell you this. If you're only working one, two days a week, you're not doing it right. He was a thief and a robber. He knew he wasn't doing it right, but he was doing it in a way that he could get away with enough to get his thief and robber. But he also mentions that there are dangers to the sheep, and he calls that danger a wolf. The wolf represents predators, and it's not somebody inside the church. It's not a pastor who has wicked intent. It's it's the world on the outside. The world that, that's decided that, that Christianity is a soft uh, target and, and they can come and they can, and they can do damage. They're motivated by the enemy, the wolves. Okay, we understand that there are pastors who, who are wicked men that, that are, are, are masquerading as shepherds for what they can get out of it. We know that there are wolves outside that want to take advantage, who want to who harm the sheep. But there's a fourth enemy here, and this is what he calls a hireling or a hired hand. Now, this is a pastor who has a good heart. This is a pastor who, who wants to be a pastor. I mean, he, he likes the people, and he, and he wants to do things to help the people, and, and he generally has decent motives. But here's the problem. When difficulty comes... He's out of there. He's not up to the challenge. He didn't want any part of the hard parts of people's lives. Jesus says there's a hireling, a hired hand who's there protecting the sheep. But when the wolf comes, hey, did I didn't sign on for this. You've got robbers and thieves. These are, these are evil men masquerading as shepherds. You have wolves. Those are, are the enemies from outside, the predators. But you also have the hirelings who generally are good guys and they have good hearts, but they are not in it all the way to the end of the battle. And here's the problem. We all want to give that guy the benefit of the doubt. We want to say, you know, he means well, he's just, you know. No, the hired hand is just as much an enemy of the sheep as the thieves, the robbers, and the wolves. Why? Because when push comes to shove, the, the, the sheep are left with nobody to protect them. Had a conversation recently with a guy who, who said that, uh, said, said I'm too, he said to me that I'm too political with my people. And I said, I said okay, um, let, me, let me see if I understand what you mean by that. You mean I talk about politics too much? He said, yeah. I said, well, actually, actually, I don't talk about politics that much at all in the pulpit. I talk about truth and morality. But he said, well, I don't talk about any of that because it puts fear in the minds of my people. I heard, I'm, I'm sorry, did, did you hear what you just said? You said that talking about the issues of our culture today 
That puts fear in the minds of your people. Let, let me tell you what's the actual truth. You're letting your people be afraid of the surrounding culture because you're not preparing them for how to face the world that they live in. You're not talking to them about how to think biblically, about how to get their minds wrapped around the issues of our day. And because you're not preparing them to face the world, now they're afraid. You see, I don't know, this is up to Jesus to judge, but it seems like that guy's a hireling. When the culture needs leadership for God's people, and they go, well, you know, I don't want to step on any toes. I don't want to upset anybody. Well, but doesn't that make you an enemy of the sheep? Did Jesus ever pull his punches? Did he ever say, you know, you mean well? You're going in the wrong direction, but you mean well, so just keep doing what you're doing. No, he didn't say that. He said it doesn't matter if you, if you mean well. What matters is what's true. And Jesus, Jesus protects his sheep by telling them the truth. He was willing to lay down his own life for the sheep. And, and he says, I'm, I'm not a hireling. I'm not here for the good times and then gone in the bad times. When the wolf comes, you want a shepherd who's willing to stay and fight the fight and to follow the model of Jesus to even lay down his life. This shepherd, the good shepherd, he has a desire for his own flock. Look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Let me talk to you about, uh, about these verses. The mark of a true shepherd is that he knows his own sheep. The Greek word there for know is a word that, ha that means timeless knowledge with no lapse or end. When Jesus knows you as his own, he will never not know you. But then he gives us what's called an Easter egg. An Easter egg is, is a word that's described when, when, when there's a hint dropped in a movie, for example, or in a book, a hint of something that you're not going to figure out till later down the road. It's a, it's a glimpse that you go, hmm, I wonder what that's about. And it unfolds as the story unfolds. Jesus is going to give us a, an Easter egg right here. Look at verse 16. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You know what he's talking about? He's been dealing with, a, with, with an almost exclusively Jewish audience. But he says, without saying it, he says, you know, we can go all the way back to Abraham. God told Abraham that he was going to raise him up and that Abraham would become a blessing to all the nations of the world. Jesus is here saying that when I'm done here, 
My message is going to be carried by my followers and they're going to go outside Jewish circles and they're going to go into Gentile circles, those, those peoples that are not Jews. And my message and my cause and my, my church is going to spread across the Roman Empire. And from the Roman Empire, it's going to spread across 2,000 years and it's going to make its way to a place called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's going to reach out to a people called Evergreen. And we are who he was talking about. We are the sheep of his flock. And he said, from the beginning, I'm going to draw them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them by name because I know them. And I'm going to bring them in. And I'm going to be their shepherd. He's talking about us. He says, I know them. And they know me. They hear my voice. And they know who I am. And they know that I have laid down my life for them. Verse 17 is a verse I need to explain to you because it's easy to understand. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back. This command I received from my Father. I don't want you to misunderstand this verse. In translation of the Bible, I guess any translation, when you're going from one language to another language, you're faced with a challenge, and here's the challenge. You want to translate the words as closely as possible from one language to the next language. But sometimes, once you've, tra you've translated the words precisely, what you realize is that the understanding of the second audience they hear those words differently than the first audience, and so they're not getting the meaning of the text. So in translation, you have this balance between translating the precise word-for-word -word translation, but then saying, but did I capture the intent of the author, the meaning of the text? This is one of those verses. What, we, what we've done in this translation that I'm reading is they have translated word for word precisely what the Greek says into the English. But in English, now it causes a possible misunderstanding for us because it doesn't quite capture the meaning of what John was trying to, of what Jesus was trying to say. Verse 17 says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. We can read that verse and what we hear is, that the Father's love for the Son is conditioned upon the Son's obedience to the Father. That is not at all what Jesus was trying to say. <coughs> Let me see if I, can, if I can paint you a picture of this. Think about it this way. When my children were little, I might come in one day and say, Hey, um, listen. If you guys will run and get in the car, I'd like to take you and we're going to buy ice cream. Well, it's funny, all the, th all the things that you have to tell your kids to do more than once, that's not one of them. <laughs> right? So instantly, they all, you know, climb all over each other to get outside. They get in the car. They get in their seats. We drive to the ice cream place. We get out. We go in. They pick out their favorite ice cream. And I buy their ice cream. And they are loving it. I mean, they're, they're licking it and they're, they're eating it and it's running down their face and then the chin is running down their arms and they can't, they can't eat it as fast as it's melting and, 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 and they're a mess. And I'm taking great joy in the whole scene. 
And I might look at you and I, I might say, look at those kids. Ice cream running down their face, down their hands. They're trying to eat it as fast as they can. And I, I said, look at those kids. I love them for the way they eat ice cream. Now, there's no chance that you walk away from that conversation going, wow, his love for his children is based on the way they eat ice cream? <laughs> you would understand that that's not what's being said. I'm not saying I love them because they eat ice cream in a messy way. I'm saying I love the joy that I see as they eat their ice cream. I love them because they bring me such satisfaction as I observe their joy. What Jesus is saying here is not that the Father loves me because I did what He told me to do. What He's saying here, let's see if we can translate this uh, uh, to capture the message a little bit. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. Because I take the mission He gave me and I have fulfilled it with such obedience the Father loves me. Not because of that, but he looks and he says to the angels in heaven, do you see my son? Do you see how he's doing what I ask him to do? Man, I love him. I love him. And an expression, an, um, um, an expression of that love is seen as, I, as he observes that obedience in the same way that it's seen as I observe the joy of my children eating ice cream. Don't misunderstand this verse. What he's telling us is there is a, a special relationship within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they love each other. There is an intimacy there. But the, one of the most mind-boggling aspects of Christianity is this. The intimacy shared within the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that intimacy has been extended to invite us in and include us. Jesus loves His sheep the same way the Father loves His Son. Folks, that ought to boggle your mind. That ought to throw you for a little bit of a loop. Jesus and the Father have such intimacy. And Jesus said, I've now called My sheep and as they come to Me, I wrap them up in the circle." of the love that I share with the Father. Wow. Well, He desires His own flock. He's been desiring that flock for 2,000 years and drawing that flock to Himself. But there was a division that ends this section. A division by His own words. Look at verse 19. It says, Dissension occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the words of one who is demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of those who are blind, can it? The more Jesus described himself, the more the Jews became angry and divided. Some of them resorted to their old tired criticism that he was possessed by demons. It was interesting that the Pharisees were so certain that they were godly that anybody that was different from them, by definition, had to be demonic. 
And so because Jesus didn't follow the ground rules that the Pharisees had set, he didn't play by the religious regulations that they lived by and promoted and weighed down on the shoulders of all the people. Because Jesus didn't do that, oh, he must be demon-possessed. Let me tell you, in our culture, there are people who have decided that the church, the body of Christ, that we're bigots, that we're hateful, that we're judgmental, that we're racist. I mean, they've used every possible invective title against us. And they've just decided that, that they've got it all figured out and that, that we're the source of the problem in the world. I've actually read articles saying things like, if the Christian church would disappear tomorrow, the world would be a much better place. Yeah, you're going to find out what the world looks like when the Christian church disappears. It's called the Great Tribulation. But they're so dead set against the church, it's as if they accuse us of being demonic. We are the, the source of everything evil in the world. Here's the thing. That's not who we're taking the gospel to. Now hear me out. Those people are in your family, they're in your workplace, they're on your neighborhood street, you pray for them, you make yourself available when they're ready to talk. But Jesus says trying to take the gospel to people who, who are blind but, but claim to be able to see so well, it's like throwing pearls to pigs. We're available when those people want to talk. But that is not our primary audience. They've already decided against God and, and they've decided against us just as a, a corollary to that decision. But I want you to see what, what's happening in this verse. Some of them said, well, Jesus is just demon-possessed. But then it said in verse 21, others were saying, these are not the words of one who is demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of those who are blind, can it? You see, there were other Jews who were saying, I don't know if I believe this guy, but but I haven't figured him out yet. <coughs> he doesn't seem to be demonic because he does things that a demon couldn't do. I mean, that guy, he's sitting right there. He was blind. He was begging yesterday. And today he can see that's not what demons do. Let me tell you something. In, in our culture, even though the loudest voices seem to be so critical and so hateful, there are plenty of people out there who are saying, you know, I haven't figured Jesus out yet. I'm not sure what I think about the church, but, but there's some strange things there. I mean, there are people who help other people when it's to no advantage to themselves. There are people who give their money to do ministry and good works in other parts of the world, they give their money to something that can't possibly be to their advantage. They, they serve others when it's, when it's an inconvenience. They, they help others without being asked. The church, the church steps up and, and helps save lives. And I don't get it. That's our target audience. Those are the people that we go to and say, hey, it's not all that much of a mystery. You see, there's this good shepherd. 
and I'm one of his sheep. And he speaks and I recognize his voice. And I follow him. And sometimes he leads me to do something and and from a worldly perspective, that thing might not make sense, but when I hear the voice of my master giving me instructions, it always makes sense. It's always the right thing for me to do. It's pretty cool being a sheep with a really good shepherd. Would you like me to introduce you to my shepherd? Once you hear his voice, there might be a connection there that you recognize that'll take you all the way into eternity. That's our target audience. The world hates us, we know that, but understand not every single individual in the world hates us. Some of them just don't know yet. But here's what the, the enemy of God does. He makes us so afraid of the haters that we're afraid to talk to the other people who just have questions. Who do you know that needs to know about your shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's also the door. And nobody gets into heaven. Nobody comes to know the Father. Nobody receives mercy and grace and forgiveness except through one single door. And that door is by Jesus. He can be your Jesus too. If you need to know Him, we'd love to introduce you. In fact, right now, in that secret place deep inside of you, there's an impulse. That's a voice that you need to learn to recognize. And that voice is saying, come to me. All of you who labor and are weary and I'll give you rest. I'll put you in my flock and I'll keep you in my sheep pen and you'll be safe. And you'll follow me and I'll take you to pastures. I'll lead you beside still waters. I'll restore your soul. And get this, even, even when it's time for you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You'll fear no evil because your good shepherd will be with you. His rod and his staff, they'll comfort you. He'll prepare a banquet for you right in the presence of your enemies. And this thing about abundant life, your life will be like a cup filled to the brim and overflowing with all that I have in store for you. Can we introduce you to Jesus? Maybe you know Jesus, but you need a church. Man, there's not another place like this. I'd love to introduce you to Evergreen and how you can be a part of this place. Maybe you follow Jesus and you're a part of Evergreen, but right now you're dry, you're parched, you've been in the desert. What you need is to come kneel at the foot of the throne of grace and just ask the Good Shepherd to restore your soul. Whatever you need to do, however you need to respond, come right now. Our pastors will be here. Come get things right. 
meet the good shepherd. Meet my Jesus. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. What an incredible moment it is when we realize that You have such good things in store for us. You've made them available from the very beginning. Lord, I pray in this moment that You would find us open to responding to Your voice in our souls. That You would draw us to Yourself. And that, Father, as we finish our time of worship and prepare to return out into the world, that we would be made fresh and new and ready for the challenges ahead of us because we've had a moment in the security, the presence, in the freshness of the presence of our, our Savior and our Shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with